Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page and support at any level. The link is in the description. So for the past couple of weeks, I've been researching about the history of the Roma people also colloquially called in English gypsies. And I think today I want to talk about the origins of the Roma. Who are they? Where did they come from? How did they find a niche and a role in European society? And how have they persisted through time? And depending on how long it takes, I expect that probably I'll go up until the beginning of the modern age, basically up to the 1700s, and then leave off the modern period after 1800 for another lecture. And also, I might, if people are interested, I might do another about the so-called traveler community in the British Isles, which involves people of Roma descent, but is also a very complex and heterogeneous society and subculture of its own. So who are the Roma? What do we mean by that term? What can we tell about their origins and how they ended up in Europe and what sort of role they've played in European civilization? So who are Roma? What does this mean? Well, the Roma or Romani or Gypsies are a broad group of related tribes and clans who live in various countries all across Europe and have been there in some way since at least the 14th century, if not earlier, who are originally descended from migrants from India and who share certain similar social traditions and customs, particularly a shared traditional language, the Romani language, and some of whom, not all, but some of whom live in itinerant or semi-nomadic lifestyle. So the Roma are very difficult to count and classify if we want to know exactly who is Roma and how many are there. They are not a single unified group. They belong to various different branches, tribes, and clans, many of which are more local in their identification, who don't always refer to themselves or think of themselves as belonging to this larger Roma category. It's very difficult to count them also because in traditional censuses, they are not always distinguished from the broader general population. When they are, it's not always by consistent or easily interpretable labels. And many of them, especially nomadic and itinerant Roma, are often not counted at all. They're, they may not even be treated as part of the population of a country. So it's very hard to pin down a number, but the best estimates are that there are around 10 million in Europe and about two or maybe closer to three million in other countries abroad, such as the U.S., Brazil, other Latin American countries, and Australia. The biggest single concentration of Roma is in Romania, 
in Eastern Europe, where they make up almost 10% of the population. There are also fairly large concentrations across Central and Southeastern Europe, such as in Greece, Hungary, and Slovakia. There are also smaller scattered communities across Western Europe, some of which are also fairly sizable, particularly in Southern France. And as I said, these groups are very heterogeneous. They live different lifestyles. They have different names and identities for themselves. Different groups are more or less assimilated or integrated into non-Roma society. But the main unifying factor is the Romani language. So what are these complications about how these various people are called? Because as I said, they do not all traditionally call themselves Roma. And in fact, most of these peoples and tribes through the past several hundred years have tended to use other particular names, and also outsiders have tended to name them and speak about them in different ways. And we have to recognize this if we're going to understand the different stories and observations and facts that have been recorded about Roma through the years. So this general term Roma comes originally from a root word in the language Rom, which simply means man or adult, or more specifically, man who belongs to the group. So you could say tribesman. And then the plural of Rom is Roma. So Roma basically just means the men or the folk or the people or tribesmen. And in this way, it's a very typical ethnonym. There are all kinds of tribes and ethnic groups around the world that have some basic name for themselves, which at root just means the men or the people. Further, speakers of Romani also distinguish between insiders and outsiders, so between members of the tribe and foreigners, whom they call gadja. And so Roma is the plural noun for people who belong to the group, and Romani is simply the adjective form. So things that pertain to the Roma are Romani, and they use this adjective form to refer also to the common language, which also is normal. When one is speaking English, one uses the word English, which is an adjective, but it's also used to refer as a noun to the language. So all of this is not unusual. But the term Roma has really been taken up and adopted as a sort of broad umbrella term more in modern times, particularly in the last few decades since the 1970s, when there's been a movement towards unity, assertion of a group identity, and encouragement of study and advocacy for the Roma people. This has become sort of the main, you could say, politically correct term for people of this ethnic group, although still all sorts of Roma people use all kinds of other terms. So what are some of these other ways of referring to the Roma? Well, for one thing, firstly, there are external names or exonyms applied to the Roma by outsiders or foreigners. And these exonyms tend to fall into two basic families. Firstly, there are exonyms or labels for the Roma that come from a root word, tsigan or tsingar. And 
It's not clear where this came from, but it clearly first occurred in Greek, that Greek speakers referred to the forebears of the people now called Roma as Tsinganoi, and this then spread and carried over into other languages in various countries where the Roma migrated. So, for instance, in Italian, the word for Roma is Zingaro or Zingari, in German, Zigeuner, sometimes in French, Zigan. And also across Eastern Europe, there are various forms of Zigan, Chigan, or Cigar, or Chigar. And as I said, this is a word of unknown derivation. It's possible that it began as an endonym, as a word that Roma people used for themselves, but it quickly was taken up as an, as an exonym, a label that outsiders apply to them. The other main family of exonyms that outsiders apply to the Roma are various terms meaning Egyptian. And this is originally a misnomer. There is no real historical connection between the Roma and Egypt. But it's possible that this word was applied to them as a more polite way of referring to them than Tsinganoi or Tsingaro, which are often have a negative or pejorative cast to them. And so originally, this may have been a more positive way of connecting them to an ancient land, and particularly, as I'll talk about later, a land that was associated with magic. So some Greeks came to refer to the Roma as Aegyptoi, and this custom also spread then into other languages, such as in Spanish, Gitano, and of course the English, Gypsy, which even still today, most English speakers are more familiar with than Roma. Now, on the other hand, what about internal endonyms that Roma people use to refer to themselves? Well, these are usually regionally specific. So, for instance, in Germany, there's a large tribe called Sinti, or who call themselves Sinti. In Spain and Portugal, the common endonym is Calais, and this term also spread then to Brazil. And also it's used in Finland. I don't know exactly why. There also are many Roma communities that use some form of Egyptian to refer to themselves too. So that is not always just an exonym applied to them from the outside. It has also been adopted as an endonym by many Roma. For instance, in Albania, it is common for Roma people to refer to themselves as Balkan Egyptians. And also some do embrace and use the term gypsy. Also, there are some variations on the term Roma that have been adopted by certain tribes and subgroups, particularly in Britain, it's traditional for Roma to call themselves Romanichal, which at root means children of the Roma. So you could translate then that further as sort of children of men or children of the tribe. There are about 200,000, it seems, in England, but many of these so-called Romanichal are integrated or embedded into a broader multi-ethnic traveler community, which is spread and migrates all around Britain and Ireland. And that is a whole other kind of complex social world unto itself, which, as I said, maybe I'll address in another lecture separately. So if we understand that these various tribes who might be called Egyptian or Tsinganoi or Calais or Romanichal are all loosely related and can be grouped under this broad heading of Roma, 
Who then are these people? Where did they come from? Can we tell what their origins are? If it seems that they are markedly different and have always been aware of their difference and distinctness from other Europeans. Well, there's a surprising lack of direct evidence from the Roma themselves about their origins. There's no traditional great epic or founding myth of the Roma as a group, as many tribes and clans often have. There's no uh, heroic founding figure or hero of the Roma. And so we have to look in indirect ways at clues surrounding the Roma to try to determine where they came from. And the two main forms of evidence that one can draw on to try to trace out who the Roma are at root are linguistic and biological. So linguistically, we can look at the Romani language, which has been preserved and passed down through the centuries and has taken on a few different distinct dialects in different regions, but is still basically consistent. And the vocabulary of Romani is overwhelmingly Indian, as in South Asia. And it is now a definite consensus among scholars and among most Roma themselves that they are originally descended from migrants from India, particularly central and northern India. And it seems that Romani can be grouped as an Indic language derived largely from Sanskrit with a great deal in common with other northern Indian languages. There is, though, a bit of a distinction between the the vocabulary and the syntax, whereas the vocabulary is very close to central Indian languages. The syntax seems to be even more linked to northwestern India and languages like Punjabi. And for this reason, scholars have theorized that possibly the original progenitors of the Roma first migrated from central India northwestward and settled there for some period of time, took on more of the grammar and syntax of those languages before then continuing out northwestward out of India to Persia and other countries, eventually leading to Europe. The other form of evidence, as I mentioned, is biological, and some of it is just obvious, the physiognomy and also the somewhat darker skin tone that is common among Roma people looks more similar to people of South Asian and Middle Eastern extraction to varying degrees. Of course, one can't be very precise about these things, and every population has intermixed repeatedly all through the years, so you can't be precise, but it is clear that they look more like they come from some part of southern or southwestern Asia. And in recent years, it has been possible to do genetic studies of Roma people, and it's clear that a great deal of their ancestry is definitely South Asian. And there are particular groups, again, in central and northern India, who seem to share distinctive genetic material with the Roma. So the, this biological evidence accords with the linguistic evidence. So all in all, it seems plausible that the Roma stemmed from a tribe or caste that emigrated en masse, first to northwestern India and then further westward into the Middle East and Eastern Europe 
it's plausible then that this may have been a low-status caste or a persecuted group that had reasons to want to leave India, as well as maybe uh, pull factors attracting them to the lands to the west where they might have had political or economic opportunities. And so you could think of the emigration of the original Roma as similar to to religious conversion events that have happened through the years, such as low-caste groups converting to Christianity or Islam or Buddhism, faiths that do not emphasize the hierarchy and inequality of castes, like in traditional Hindu practice. Also, when one looks at the degree of divergence, exactly how different the Roma people are today to what might be their distant relatives in India, it makes sense to suppose that this emigration happened a long time ago, certainly over a thousand years ago, one might guess maybe somewhere around 500 or so AD. And this is significant because that seems to coincide then with the decline and eventual breakdown of the Gupta Empire. So the Gupta Empire was a fairly stable, strong state that ruled over most of northern and central India in the 4th and 5th centuries and then went into decline and broke up in the 6th century. And so possibly in the comparative chaos, uncertainty, fragmentation of that time, certain people, especially of lower caste groups, might have found it appealing to move westward into Persian territory, which comparatively was more stable, more prosperous at that moment. But this raises the question then, can we further pinpoint or at least make a good guess as to what the specific group might have been? and their particular origin within Indian society that emigrated. And this is very sketchy and very speculative, but there are clearly very suggestive connections to a specific group in India called the Dom. So the Dom are a loose collection of local tribes and castes of mostly low status, in central India. And these various tribes and castes don't have a great deal in common. They seem to have different languages and dialects, different religious practices. They probably don't have a common ancestor. But what they have in common is their activity and role in society. They are known as musicians and also some in addition to their traditional occupation as musicians are metal workers. And this word dom in their language or various languages means men or tribesmen, similar to Ram in Romani. But it seems that it also derives originally from the word for drum. And so it's connected right at its root with their association with musical performance. And words for drum seem to seem to be originally in Ottomanopia. And the English word tom-tom has come into English from southern Indian languages, apparently also from the same root. And the dom also 
have particular tribes and castes in central India who are called Dom, who are referred to under that label, seem to have particularly close linguistic and genetic similarities to the Roma. So it does make sense to think that the original Roma were connected or related to these Dom tribes in central India, but with a significant degree of divergence over time. And so it probably has been maybe 1,400 or 1,500 years since this initial emigration out of India began. So if we say that that seems to be currently our best guess as to where the ancestors of the Roma came from originally, can we say anything about what happened next? Are there any clues as to their westward migration that led eventually to Europe? Well, it seems that the earliest written possible written references to ancestors of the Roma might come from Persia. And the important one in particular is in a classic Persian epic called the Shahnameh, which was written in the 10th century. So it describes many centuries of Persian history, including historical events, myth, fables, on up until the Islamic age. And it's quasi-legendary, but it may contain some real information. And in the Shahnameh, there is a passage discussing the reign of the Persian emperor Bahram V, which was in the early 400s. And this passage claims that the emperor Bahram was concerned that the common people of Persia had no access to music. And in order to fix this, the emperor asked the so-called king of India to send lute players into Persia. And several hundred of them supposedly then migrated into Persia. And the emperor supplied them with animals and grain to farm and asked them in return to play music for free for the common people. But, reportedly, these musicians ate supplies rather than beginning farms, and they went to the emperor asking for more, and so the emperor then banished them as punishment and ordered them to pack their bags and set out on their donkeys and wander across the world. So, this is very sketchy. You know, we can't know for certain whether anything like this really happened or if it happened in the way it's described in this epic. But it certainly is very suggestive that this poem claims that a specific group devoted to music migrated out of India into Persia in roughly speaking the right sort of time frame. And that rather than settling down and becoming settled farmers, they instead continue to travel out through the world. And so this may be a clue as to how some group of Indian descent, particularly associated with music, ended up migrating further west towards Europe. It's possible that some descendants of the original Roma or of this group referred to in the Shahnameh or both, ended up becoming the group called the Zot, which is a particular tribal caste of merchants, musicians, mercenaries, guards, and animal handlers 
who are recorded as existing in the Persian Empire in the 700s and who were reportedly sent to Antioch. But it's not clear if if the Zat are connected to India, it's not clear necessarily that they are ancestors of the Roma. And it's also possible that instead, the Zat might have been the ancestors of the people called Dom in the Middle East, who are a separate distinct group speaking a language called Domari. So the, the Dom in modern day Lebanon, Turkey, and Palestine. These are distinct from the Dom in India, but obviously they may very well be connected. And for many years, scholars supposed that the Dom might simply be a sort of offshoot group of the Roma, that they might have stemmed from the same migrating tribe, and some simply settled along the way in the Middle East, while others continued on to Europe. But today, based on linguistic and genetic evidence, that is not believed to be the case. It's more likely that two different groups migrated out from central India around the same time, speaking rather similar languages, so probably related, but that one went westward into the Middle East, while others went, took a far northerly route and ended up going into Europe separately. Now, some scholars, particularly Roma scholars, also point to other possible forebears. For one thing, in the early 1000s, so several hundred years later, a dynasty in what's now Afghanistan called the Ghaznavids began to raid down into India, and they took many prisoners. And the Ghaznavid Empire was Islamic, whereas most of the armies that they defeated and captured in India in these years were Hindu. And so many of these Hindu prisoners of war were then taken as basically slave mercenaries back into Afghanistan and Persia and used as fighters, particularly in sort of internecine conflicts among different Muslim powers. So some have suggested that these prisoner, sort of prisoner fighters in the Persian Empire and the Ghaznavid Empire might also be the progenitors of the Roma. But there are problems with this theory. For one thing, the other evidence, as I said, suggests a much, much earlier divergence than the 1000s. And there is further evidence that indicates that the migration of the Roma from India to Europe was actually very slow and gradual over many years. So it probably didn't happen so quickly that these people were captured by Ghaznavids in the 1000s, and then within a few decades, they were in Europe. So this further evidence is linguistic. If you look into the syntax of Roma, it's very complicated, and it differs more from the languages in modern-day India, as opposed to the vocabulary, which has remained quite close. So there are particular distinctive features of the grammar of Romani that resemble Persian as well as Armenian and Byzantine Greek. And this suggests something about the early Roma or the Proto-Roma as they moved from country to country eventually towards Europe. It seems that they stayed for some period of time and had a certain degree of linguistic interaction with these different countries, particularly Persia, 
Armenia, which at this time was a much more expansive area, including a lot of what's now Turkey, and the Byzantine Empire, the Greek Eastern Roman Empire. Specifically, it suggests that people joined them as they moved along the way. And this is a point that stands out to me in particular. When different societies interact and people have to learn different languages, it's much easier to learn and pick up the vocabulary of a new language than it is to pick up the syntax. And so often when people are thrown together and they have to, they're thrown into a new environment where they're forced to learn a new language, they pick up the new words very easily, whereas they retain the syntactical structures that are more kind of deeply embedded in their thinking. And so often you end up with Creole languages where the vocabulary comes from some dominant group, whereas the syntax is retained from the lower status group who don't necessarily adjust their way of forming sentences. So the fact that Romani has this heavily Indian vocabulary, but a much more complex creolized syntax, suggests that they, as they migrated, were not necessarily adapting or assimilating into these societies and adopting their languages like Persian or Armenian. Rather, certain numbers of people were coming over and joining them, bringing in the syntax that they knew, retaining it, and sometimes working it into the Romani language while they learned the vocabulary of the community, which is Indian. So hence you end up with this interesting kind of hybrid language, which I think reflects this pattern where this distinct group somehow maintained its separate identity and its own language as it moved from country to country and picked some people up along the way as they went. And this also makes sense with the biological evidence, where clearly the Roma of today are a mixed people, you know, people with different streams of ancestry coming from all over the Middle East and Eastern Europe, but clearly with this still very strong element from India. So if that's our best explanation of where the Roma came from, how did they end up in Europe? And how did they find a place in European society? Well, it happens that the first definite, really indisputable references to a group of people who clearly are forebears of the Roma come from the Byzantine Empire in the 11th century. So the earliest facts about the origins of the Roma people that we can draw from written records are about their early appearance in Constantinople. So there, firstly, there's a religious text called The Life of St. George the Anchorite, which is just a common sort of biography of a saint, as was written all throughout the Christian world. This Byzantine text says that in the year 1050, there was an arrival of a new tribal group from the east, which this text calls Adzinkani. And so reportedly in that year, the Byzantine emperor was having a problem with wild animals coming into the imperial parks and gardens in Constantinople and preying upon the imperial game, which of course is a prized possession of kings and emperors. And so reportedly the emperor called upon, quote, 
a Samaritan people, descendants of Simon Magus, who were called Adzinkani, and notorious for soothsaying and sorcery. So this group comes in, and right from the beginning, as you can see, they're perceived as magical. Right? They're known for soothsaying and sorcery, and they're described as descendants of Simon Magus, who is a figure in the New Testament, a sort of magician or sorcerer figure. And reportedly, they also have control over animals. They're experts in the management of animals. And in order to repel these wild beasts coming into the Imperial Park, they cast spells over pieces of meat, which they then leave out and which then poison the wild animals. So this is the first story we get about this group called Adzinkani, but they then show up again in later Byzantine texts, in narratives, travel accounts, and in church pronouncements and decrees. So particularly churchmen and theologians repeatedly condemn these people. They call them Adzinganoi, which is just the close Greek equivalent of Adzinkani. We don't know where that word comes from, but it might possibly derived from an older Greek term, Athinganoi, which was applied to a fringe heretical Christian sect several hundred years earlier. And it seems that Athinganoi originally means forbidden or untouchable. So it may be that it's just a corruption of Athinganoi, but we really don't know. And the churchmen repeatedly condemn these people for magic and sorcery and forbid Christians and members of the church from consulting with them. And of course, as we've said many times before, if the authorities bother to ban something, it's because somebody is actually doing it. So we can surmise that probably there were Christian people going to these so-called Adzinganoi to ask for magical favors or to tell their fortunes. So because they were so controversial, they were probably excluded from the capital at Constantinople and relegated to marginal lands outside the city and to marginal social roles. So it seems from later accounts and references that they were known for acrobatics, for various sorts of performances, including acrobatics, animal training, especially bear handling. And there are descriptions of them from the Byzantines in the 1300s, performing juggling acts on tightropes, trapeze, horses, and balancing acts. They also were known for shoemaking and shoe repairing, and some of the earliest references to specific individuals are to shoemakers. They're also sometimes described as spies and thieves. So there's a very mixed perception here. And there was a continuing association with magic and animals. So from the 13 and 1400s, there are references to snake charming and bear leading, and also to crafts like creating amulets, performing healings, particularly to protect against the evil eye. And the way that one treated and viewed these people, the so-called Adzinganoi, depended a lot on one's opinions about magic. So magic obviously was seen as dangerous and a threat to many people, especially in the church, but also there were scholars and lay people who might take a more positive interest. 
and it seems that around this time some began to refer to them as Egyptian in a positive light. There was an awareness that there was a coherent group, a sort of tribal group, that they could connect to Egypt. And particularly, it it's doubtful that any of the people who first labeled them as Egyptian really literally thought that they were from Egypt. It's more likely that they connected them to Egypt because of the association with magic, and especially with the revival of Neoplatonism and the Hermetic texts. There was an increasing sort of positive interest in magic and in the sort of ancient knowledge of magic and sorcery deriving supposedly from Egypt. So by this time, by the 1300s, it's clear that they're also spreading beyond the area of Constantinople, westward and northwestward into Greece and the Balkans. And in the 1300s, there were early appearances of references to so-called Egyptian slaves in Wallachia, which was a kingdom basically in present-day Romania on the upper frontiers of the Byzantine Empire. And it seems that these people, from the earliest references to their presence in Wallachia, they were treated as slaves and they were often bought and sold by princes and dukes with control over territory. In Greece, it seems that Roma moved fairly quickly westward and there was a particular concentration of Roma in the Venetian colonies, the sort of outposts that were still technically under Byzantine suzerainty, but really for all intents and purposes were controlled and colonized by the Republic of Venice. And it's possible that these Roma moved into these Venetian colonies because this offered them opportunities for trade. And maybe also they had greater toleration and acceptance, perhaps for their economic usefulness in these Venetian outposts than they did in Constantinople. And it's clear that by the 1400s, they are a long known, long established group. And many travelers and visitors in these Venetian colonies referred to them as spies or thieves or also as smiths, metalworkers. They also appeared shortly after in Ragusa, which is another independent republic, maritime republic, on the Adriatic Sea, what's now called Dubrovnik, which was at that time a minor imperial power and a sort of rival, upstart rival of Venice. So Roma people might have migrated there for similar reasons. And in all of these towns and outposts from the Adriatic down the western coast of Greece, it seems that they often formed suburbs or temporary encampments outside of towns. And they act as traders, laborers, innkeepers, millers, smiths, cobblers, and musicians. In 1360, a fiefdom was created on the island of Corfu. So that's an island off the western coast of Greece, traditionally Greek-speaking, but it was another of these Venetian colonies that increasingly was being taken over more and more by the Republic of Venice and Venetian colonists. And so the Byzantine government gave a special grant of rights and privileges in Corfu to the Venetian colonists. And this grant was called the Feudum Acinganorum. So Acinganorum clearly is derived from this same root, Adzinganoi, Adzincani. 
And it seems that many of the peasant laborers on Corfu, who then were obligated to render service and payments to the Venetian overlords, were Roma. And probably they were mainly shepherding people and animal, engaged in animal husbandry more than in farming. And in later years, this Roma community on Corfu became a known fixture on the island, and they were described as mechanics, smiths, tinkers, and husbandmen. And they were known, one of their distinctive customs was celebrating a great yearly festival on the 1st of May. Now, it wasn't until 1384 that earliest known appearance in the records occurs of an ethnonym with the root Rom or Roma. So in that year, in 1384, an Italian pilgrim named Leonardo Frescobaldi was traveling on his way to Jerusalem with a group of Florentine pilgrims to the Holy Land. And they stopped over in the town of Modon in Greece on the western coast, which was one of these Venetian-controlled colonies. It, today it's, it's known as Mathoni in Greek, but the Italians called it Modon. And while there... Leonardo Frescobaldi went out around the town and he saw a large encampment of black tents. He approached them and he found there a group of people whom he referred to as Egyptians. So it seems that this notion was already widely known and current that these people were Egyptians. But Frescobaldi, perhaps being influenced by early Renaissance humanism, he did something unusual. Rather than just say, I see Egyptians, he went up to them and tried to converse with them and asked them who they were, so he could get more directly from the source their identity. And reportedly, they told him that they were Romiti, which seems to basically mean children of Roma or children of the tribe, a lot like the term I mentioned before in Britain, Romani Chao. So this is the first known instance we can see where outsiders actually showed some curiosity in who these people were and how they referred to themselves. And this is where we first see some form of the name Roma appearing in writing. And it seems that pretty quickly after this, Modon in particularly became known for its large Roma quarter, which came to be called Little Egypt. And Little Egypt was widely known in Italy, in the Mediterranean world, because they could offer services like lodging or shoe repairs or repairs of tools or food to pilgrims on their way back and forth to the Holy Land. So we can see that they're starting to get some place in the European landscape by about 1400. And from that point onward, it seems that there were two main streams that emerged as Roma spread westward and settled more and more in widespread parts of Europe. So there was a northern stream that seems to have gone up through Eastern Europe and then into Germany and France. And in the early 1400s, we see the earliest references to the appearance of Egyptians or Adzincani of one sort or another in Germany and France, and then further into Britain and Scandinavia around 1500, and just about everywhere else by 1550. So they're, they're really all over Eastern, Central, and Northern Europe by the mid-1500s. 
And then there's also a southern stream, which seems to have moved along the coast of North Africa, westward through the Mediterranean world, then into Spain, where there was a large population by the 1400s, and from Spain upward, northward into France. And so it seems that by the end of the Middle Ages, the two streams actually met up in southern France, and there has traditionally been a large population there. So how did these European societies respond? What did they think of these Roma migrants? How did they react to them? Where were they allowed? Well, it seems there was tremendous confusion and ambiguity about who these people were and how to treat them when they show up in these various societies. So there's a lot of contradiction, a lot of back and forth. Their legal status was constantly changing. They were accepted and then expelled and then accepted again over and over again. One reason why some of them were accepted into these various realms was that they were often perceived, because they were habitually itinerant, they were perceived as pilgrims. And pilgrimage was a very honored and important activity in late medieval Europe. It was something that penitent Christians did. And there were even many so-called professional pilgrims who spent most of their lives traveling around from one site to another as a kind of act of piety. And it seems that sometimes the Roma could really play into this and encourage this perception that they were penitent Christian pilgrims. So the authorities, especially civil and royal authorities were often very uncertain and fickle in how they reacted to the Roma. There were cycles of laxity and tolerance followed by crackdowns. In Spain, different regions and subsections of Spain would often treat the, the Roma very differently and issue expulsion orders, which then might be countermanded. Uh, the, the Roma might simply move from one region across a border to another and then come back. There was this sort of repeated uh, unending cycle. But ultimately, the disposition of the Roma was up to royal authorities. They had the final decision in who could live in their realms and on what terms. And so the Roma, in this sense, were often treated effectively as property of the crown, in much the same way as Jews in most realms were almost kind of prisoners of the royal authorities. Exactly where the Roma were and what they did, when and where, is very difficult to trace because of the inconsistency, for one thing, in how they're referred to. There's no consistent name or terminology for referring to these people. And sometimes names would come up and attach to Roma or particular groups of Roma and then be sort of bandied about and morph in their meaning and reference. And an interesting example of that is that a large Roma group for a time lived in the kingdom of Bohemia and then were given letters of safe passage from the Bohemian royal government to move abroad. And many went westward from Bohemia into France, carrying these letters of protection, and hence they were called Bohemian. And in the French language, that word then simply became 
another byword for Roma, and from there it also expanded in meaning to mean wanderer or social outcast. And of course, it's now passed into modern, even into modern English, to mean kind of nonconformist person on the fringes of society. Uh, but it seems that <laughs> it started originally from this strange confusion caused by Roma people moving with documents from Bohemia into France. And further, it's also very difficult to trace out what the Roma were doing and where they were and how people responded to them, because probably most of the time they were not taken note of as necessarily so interesting or distinctive, at least in much of Southern and Eastern Europe. It was not so unusual in the Middle Ages to see a strange, unusual tribe or clan speaking a strange language that you don't understand. That in itself was not so out of the norm. Europe in the Middle Ages was a complicated patchwork of ethno-linguistic groups, and the authorities didn't necessarily care if they noticed, well, there's this odd people living on this mountainside or on this in this river valley, that didn't necessarily matter unless you saw them presenting an opportunity or presenting a threat. So this situation where you could just kind of pass by the Roma and shrug it off as just another odd tribe in the mix, this only changed gradually later with the rise of modern states and eventually nation states, which assume that you ought to have a homogeneous population. Now, as I've been saying, a lot of these Roma people continued to be itinerant and to move from place to place, but also increasingly in the 13 and 1400s, a lot of them settled down, formed more permanent villages or at least long-lasting encampments, and started to take up a certain lasting or permanent role in European society. So how did this happen and how did people react to this development? How were they integrated or not integrated in? Well, basically, in Central and Eastern Europe, there was a solidification of repression and servitude. So the basic thinking was, if Roma are going to live permanently in these domains in Central and Eastern Europe, they must be at the bottom of society and they must be in a position of servitude under the control of some authorities. So as I mentioned before, in Wallachia, large numbers of Roma were slaves and continued to be for hundreds of years. They were reduced to servitude, it seems, in large part to prevent them from leaving. Powerful lords saw Roma as useful, as offering valuable craft skills like metalworking and animal training, and they didn't want them to simply keep migrating, so they reduced them to a, a position of servitude where they could be kept as slaves on certain domains. Usually, they would be held as whole families, so a family or a clan would belong in some sense to a lord They'd sometimes be traded, bought and sold, or given as gifts to monasteries. So there was a particular population of enslaved Roma under the domination of landowning monasteries. And many of these Roma were put to work in making clothes, in building, in cooking, and domestic service. Anyone who married in to a Roma family was then also automatically enslaved. 
In the Habsburg Empire, the number of Roma was much smaller, but they were enserfed. So they were reduced to the status of servitude of the lowest status peasants. In Northern and Western Europe, the reaction was a little more complicated and there was continuing ambivalence and contradiction in how the local peoples in Northern and Western Europe viewed and treated the Roma. So there was repeated condemnation by churchmen who viewed them as sorcerers and as threats to the authority of the church. But there continued to be some lingering perception of them as sort of holy pilgrims all through the 1400s, and this didn't really end until after 1500. There was also increasing curiosity, on the other hand, by scholars, especially in certain countries in Northern Europe, like Scotland and the Scandinavian kingdoms. Uh, educated people became interested in their history, their customs, their language. And in England, there was the first sign of scholarly interest in understanding and analyzing the Romani language. And somewhere around the year 1530, an Oxford scholar named Andrew Board went out to a Roma encampment outside Oxford and interviewed people about their language. And he collected a list of 60 words and their meanings, which were then later published in a pamphlet in 1547. And it's a bit ironic that this same time about 1530, that Board was trying to begin study of Romani speech. This was the same year as an act in the Kingdom of England called an act condemning outlandish people calling themselves Egyptians. So this was the beginning of a series of crackdowns by the English government under the Tudors, basically condemning and expelling Roma from the country. And this was part of a pattern. From about 1500 onward, there was an increasing wave of expulsions and deportations from various countries in Europe. There was a wave of prohibitions of Roma's being banned from certain zones or towns or cities, banned from certain professions and activities. And often these prohibitions were backed up with threats of whipping, scourging, or even execution. And it seems that this pattern started initially in Central Europe when they, the Roma were officially condemned as spies in the Holy Roman Empire in the year 1500, and then it spread outward from there. And there are probably two related factors fueling this rise of persecution against Roma. One was the rise and success of the Ottoman Empire, a Turkish Islamic empire that came out of Central Asia and now was invading and occupying a lot of Europe. And so there was this increased suspicion that the Roma were somehow agents or in league with the Turks. And also, this was the same time as the witch hunt and the increasing paranoia around witches, which also was particularly concentrated in Central Europe and the Holy Roman Empire. And so it doesn't seem that the Roma were necessarily called witches, but there was a sort of increasing general fear and atmosphere of paranoia that someone was sabotaging society from within, someone was in league with the devil, and using evil magic or sorcery to harm the Christian world. So it clearly the witch hunt and anti-Roma hatred were connected. 
The biggest exception, as you go through the 1500s, the biggest exception to this pattern seems to be Scotland, where the Scottish royal government was comparatively much more friendly and tolerant towards the Roma and more interested in them. And there's even one surviving document which claims that an unnamed king of Scotland was healed by a so-called gypsy. And it doesn't say who this is, but it might have been James VI, who spent several years in France in the 1580s, at which time he may have come into contact with the larger Roma population there. So it was possible for Roma who had these different skills and services to sometimes win favor from the authorities. But the overall pattern through the 15 and 1600s was rising persecution and greater repression and expulsions. And this was also the same time, of course, that these northern and western European powers were colonizing the New World. And some of them, particularly England, but also others, were rounding up unwanted people and shipping them off to the colonies. So many Roma were rounded up, imprisoned, in some way condemned, and sent to the colonies. So significant numbers migrated from Portugal to Brazil, and there's a very significant and long-established so-called Calais community in Brazil. Smaller numbers from England were deported to Virginia, and it seems that there was a certain Roma element in the sort of forced labor servant population in colonial Virginia, which over time intermarried and blended with the African-American population. Also, it seems several clans were deported from France to Louisiana, particularly a large group in northern France were sent on a particular ship to the Louisiana colony, which was a very dangerous environment, very disease-ridden, where many thousands of French prisoners were forcibly sent to try to build up that colony very quickly in the early 1720s. So some Roma were caught up in that movement. And it seems that this group of Roma that were sent to Biloxi were able to regather as a group and form lasting concentrated settled groups, one at Biloxi and another at Alexandria on the Red River. And there are records going up into the 19th century of the continuing existence of this group and of their identity as so-called Egyptians. But over time, it seems that these Egyptians in Louisiana gradually intermarried with other people, particularly Native Americans, and sort of blended in to those tribes and nations in the lower Mississippi Valley. So in the early modern age in general, Roma tended to be seen as a political problem, a sort of dangerous or unwanted, undesirable presence in European society. And the most repressive and intolerant time, it seems, was the 1600s and early 1700s, basically coinciding with the general crisis of the 17th century, this time of continuing religious warfare and civil warfare all around Europe. Roma often were simply lumped together indiscriminately with rogues and vagabonds who are greatly feared by these new growing 
royal states that are afraid of possible sources of rebellion or resistance. So they're seen as a destabilizing, possibly subversive element. And in the 1600s, royal governments who are empowered by mastery of gunpowder see a greater need to solidify and consolidate their territorial realms. There's a greater desire for population control. New technologies are used in map making and census taking to try to monitor and survey and control large populations, particularly for the purposes of taxation and conscription to support large armies. So whereas in the Middle Ages, security was mainly achieved through fortifications and small elite groups of well-trained fighters like knights on horseback, in the early modern age, states have power and control over territory, mainly through large armies and artillery. So you need to really control populations. And there is a greater desire for uniformity, homogeneity, and the rudiments of what we would now today call a nation state. And this, of course, makes the Roma a big problem. And there's a lot of ambivalence about how to count or label the Roma and whether to try to integrate them into a national society or simply expel them. And there's a rise through the 16 and early 1700s. There are many mob attacks, repeated expulsions, exclusions, again, from towns and villages and occupations. And sometimes in, in England, England would often be the most extreme. They could be subject to immediate execution if caught anywhere in England, at least in some periods of time when some laws and decrees were in force. So if the environment was so hostile in this early modern period, why did the Roma persist as a distinct group? Why did they not either assimilate and blend into society or die out? Well, it seems that there is a complex combination of internal and external factors that made it possible for the Roma to continue and perpetuate themselves through time in this, at least politically, hostile environment. So what are some of these internal and external factors? Well, internally, there was a certain degree of acculturation. The Roma did adopt some important customs and beliefs from the European countries they lived in. Certainly by 1400, most had become Christian, and the different groups and tribes tended to conform to the local churches in the countries where they lived. So they were Eastern Orthodox in the Byzantine Empire, they were Roman Catholic in Catholic countries, and after the Reformation, they become Protestant in Protestant countries, and also some in the Ottoman territories become Muslim. So they, they adopt certain crucial religious beliefs and practices which make them more acceptable in the eyes of authorities. Many of them also become bilingual or multilingual, so they can communicate, trade, speak up for themselves at the same time that they continue to pass on the Romani language. And there are also important internal customs, distinctive customs and practices that set the Roma apart from the outsiders, from the Gaja, and that help to ensure internal cohesion and continuity. 
So they have a complex social organization, particularly into clans called Vitsi. And these clans have clear leaders with the authority to settle disputes and tamp down conflict within the Roma community. So there's very little violence in the Roma community. And there are very complex codes and taboos, usually involving boundaries between the pure and the impure. And this overall system of traditions and taboos and prohibitions is sometimes called Romani pen, or the Romani way or Romani law. And there's this repeating theme of maintaining the boundaries between the pure and the impure, and distinguishing between honorable and dishonorable conduct, between the male and female realms of activity, between clean and unclean food. And there are very early stories and early accounts of the Roma of their custom, at least in sometimes in places, a custom of not accepting food directly from a stranger's hands, but rather uh, having it left on the ground for a period of time before you pick it up, sort of signaling this desire to maintain boundaries and uh, avoid impurities. Boundaries between the upper and lower body which are seen as symbolic of the sort of pure and honorable realm versus the impure. There is an enduring, very strong taboo against exposure of the lower body. And this was sometimes used against them by, by enemies as a sort of mental torture to force Roma people to expose their lower bodies, which is extremely uh, unclean and humiliating. And boundaries between insiders and outsiders, right? Between Roma, the people of the tribe, and Gaja, foreigners. There are limits on contact, fraternization, and particularly intermarriage with outsiders. And there are certain taboo customs like one cannot take up any Gaja dwelling place, a home or, or even a, a field, without doing some sort of ritual cleansing. And all these things that are unclean or impure are called marime, and they have to be somehow managed by being avoided or cast out or cleansed out. And all of these customs I'm describing should make sense and should sound very familiar if you are aware of the Indian caste system, where Indian society is traditionally divided into castes and tribes that maintain boundaries, such as whom you can marry, whom you can eat with or not eat with, where you can live, what occupation you can practice, and so on. So it seems that this sort of set of attitudes about activity and about boundaries between pure and impure Uh, carried over from India, most likely, and helped to maintain a cohesive, distinct group as they migrated westward. So alongside these internal factors encouraging cohesion and continuity, it seems that there are also important external factors that helped to keep the Roma in existence as a group within Europe. Specifically, the Roma seem to have taken on a specific social role and niche that made them useful or advantageous to European civilization as a whole, much like castes in India can take on particular social and economic roles. Likewise, the Roma stepped into a particular niche in European society, particularly 
Roma came to serve the range of functions that, at least in rural society, can only be performed by traveling people, by itinerants, not by stationary settled people. So the distinctive economic roles and occupations that it seems Roma served, I've mentioned a lot of these before. For one thing, repairing, especially repairing of metal tools and cookware, ceramics and shoes, the sort of things that you may not want to spend money or go into a town or a city to buy new if it can be repaired. Also, performance and entertainment, dance and acrobatics, animal handling, and especially music. So it seems that the Roma, although they may have brought some musical traditions with them from Asia into Europe, nonetheless, they also adapted and developed local styles that might appeal to local audiences around them. And there are certain musical genres that are often associated with Roma, but really are kind of hybrid developments. The most famous, of course, being flamenco, which is a style of music, dance, and theater that developed in Andalusia in southern Spain, and that were created partly by Gitano migrants learning styles and techniques from the Moriscos, the community of ex-Muslims or crypto-Muslims in southern Spain. And it can be overstated, flamenco is not a Roma import from abroad. Rather, it's something that this local, particular local group of Roma learned and then developed and elaborated on in Spain. Also, they practiced and specialized in horse training and horse trading. So this was a major function that they performed for hundreds of years. And in recent times, incidentally, this has transitioned over into the used car trade. <laughs> now, that, now that horses are not the main vehicle, they've taken a lot of the same sort of trading techniques and networks and simply moved them over to used cars. And lastly, their last major specialization, which seems to have continued and endured all through the past thousand years, is magic, especially fortune-telling. And it seems that at least in recent years, according to ethnographers, a lot of the Roma practitioners do not necessarily believe in the magic that they purportedly perform. They don't necessarily really think that they're literally telling the future or performing divination with tarot cards, but rather they play into the perceptions and the general widespread beliefs and superstitions of the wider population. And so if you have a country where a great many people believe that fortune-telling and magic are possible, but it's very taboo to perform them, then that role can fall to people who are already outside or on the margins of society. And that is a way that many Roma have made a living through the years. So for all these reasons, because Roma people could offer all of these special services that required specific skills that might not be easily available in a small village or a small town, they had a certain advantage to offer uh, they could be seen as desirable. And in some instances, it seems local people were very happy to receive the Roma and would throw banquets and celebrations when Roma came into town. It meant that they were going to have shows and entertainments, they could get their shoes repaired, they could get their fortunes told, etc., etc. 
So there was a certain desirability, at least to certain people and certain markets, at the same time that there was also prejudice and stigma against them. So there are these contradictions and tensions. Sometimes local communities, although they might welcome a temporary traveling Roma encampment, they didn't want a permanent settlement or integration into society. And if there were sometimes some Roma who might want to assimilate or intermarry or blend in to the wider society, they were rejected. And this stigma against Roma could sometimes be so strong that it would even thwart state efforts to force the Roma to assimilate. For example, the Empress Maria Theresa of Austria in the mid-1700s tried to force Roma to settle permanently in place and even then to alienate children from the Roma in order to assimilate them into the wider society. But this wouldn't work if, for instance, there were no families who wanted to adopt a Roma child, or there were no towns or villages that would accept Roma living among them. This could simply make a scheme like this unworkable. So the the stigma and the exclusion were also a factor in keeping the Roma apart, again, as a distinct community with a specialized social role. Later, especially beginning in the 1700s, it seems that there was also a flip side to this stigma and prejudice against the Roma. So at the same time that you view them as undesirable, as heathenish, many people continued to call them heathens, even though they were Christian and had been Christians for centuries, and they were seen as undesirable because of their physical appearance or their low social status, there also could be another side to that coin. There could be a, a romanticization, a sort of attraction or fascination with the Roma as exotic and as exemplifying freedom and for their connections to magic and their mysterious origins. And this sort of romantic interest in the Roma could even have shades of envy to it. And so it's not surprising that sometimes runaways, social outcasts, or nonconformists of one sort or another would join the Roma. And so it seems that over time, many Roma communities, despite the exclusion, despite the waves of persecution, some Roma communities actually grew because they would pick people up along the way in the, in the same sense or a similar sense to what I referred to earlier, that it seems very likely to me that as the Roma went through the Persian domains and the Byzantine domains, they picked people up as they went more than they lost them. Now, many of these observations that I've made here about the Roma and why they endured as a distinct group should again sound very familiar to people who have who know of the history of the Jews in Europe. And it can be very clarifying, I think, and can drive this point home to look at the parallels between the Roma and the other great pan-European minority ethnic group that has also survived through the centuries, which is Jews. And there are some remarkable parallels. The strong in-group loyalty and endogamy, meaning marriage within the group, the strong taboos about pure and impure things, particularly pure and impure foods, which in the case of Jews, 
is the kosher laws, which limit what sort of foods Jews can eat and what sort of foods they can share with outsiders or Gentiles. There's the distinct language, which of course for the Roma is Romani, and for Jews is Hebrew as a religious and liturgical language, as well as Ladino and Yiddish as secular vernacular Jewish languages, all of which have survived through the centuries. There's the special economic niche. So for Roma, that was the functions of itinerant people and the services that they could offer. But for Jews, it was activities and trades that Jews could perform that were forbidden for Christians, such as money lending or money lending at interest. This was forbidden for Christians by the church, but Jews were not subject to that ban because they were not members of the church. And in these ways, these sort of, uh, you could say, fringe or marginal professions and occupations could offer this distinct group uh, an economic foothold. There was the ambivalent attitude by the outside world, which could waver between tolerance and persecution, between fascination and hatred. So when it comes to Jews, there's a combination of a, a fascination or even admiration for Jews, for their, their ancient traditions, their connection to the Bible, the, the fact that the roots of Christianity come out of Judaism, at the same time that there could be great hate and revulsion and an enduring stigma. So in all kinds of ways, you can see similar forces, internal and external, acting on Jews in Europe and Roma that helped them to sort of maintain this high wire act, this balancing act of existing in Europe, avoiding total annihilation, while also not simply blending in to the wider population. And you can see a lot of similar results, the repeated expulsions, the constantly changing and contradictory policies, and the remarkable endurance into the modern age. And so I leave off here for now, and maybe later I'll talk about the Roma and what they experienced and how they've adapted and survived in the modern era after about 1800, and the continuing, I would say, remarkable parallels between the experiences of Roma and Jews. But I'll leave that for another time, and also possibly, again, if people are interested, I'll talk about the distinctive and complicated traveler community in Britain and Ireland. Again, if you can help keep this material coming, please go to my Patreon page, become a supporter at any level, and you can hear my free patron-only lectures, including my last Myth of the Month about the Founding Fathers. Thank you. Thank you.